Vision Month. We've been having a great time. We're already gone over a month. So this is Vision fifth week, I think we're in. So it's a stretch of the term of month. Uh, we can do that with month. We shouldn't stretch the scriptures that way. Uh, but we're doing it with the term Vision Month. And we're talking about our vision. If you're just joining in, recapping, and you can catch up. But our vision as a community, it's a time for vision again, is to be a people pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in his story. And I just love that vision. Obviously, I love it because we sort of, you know, half ripped it from other people and half articulated it ourselves. Of course, we love it, but I love what it does in a life. I love that that says, we're, we, this is what we're about. We're about following Jesus. We're about following after him. We're about pursuing him. We're about being transformed by him. We're about being with him. But also, we're about playing out in his story. It's like when Jesus said to Andrew and Peter, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. It's like pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in his story. And then we've been talking about our values as a community because we need these values, these pillars, these riverbanks, these convictions, these non-negotiables that shape our journey so that it ends up in that vision. And we've talked about our first value, aroha, love to be people who measure our progress by love, that we measure our maturity by love, that, that that is what we realize God is trying to form this agape love in our lives and it flows from him and it flows to us and it flows through us back to him and to the people around us. And then we've talked about our second value, rongapai or the gospel and mission. And we've talked about how that's not like the one minute version that you get in an altar call in a gathering. But the gospel is the good news of Jesus. What is that? It's the whole story of Jesus inside the whole story as a fulfillment to the story of Israel and Eden. And we want to be people who embody that story, who know that story, who live in that story, who witness to that story and a part of like God's making all things new in this world. And we want to be a part of that. That's what it means to be about the gospel mission. And then last week we talked about tikanga wairua, or spiritual practices. And you know, I, people told me, they messaged me, ooh, that was pretty hard hitting. Uh, and you know, you know me, I don't really beat around the bush. And so it's, it's hard hitting intentionally because you will never grow beyond your spiritual practices. And so, you know, all of us, we need to constantly growing, exploring, stretching in the way we connect with God and in the way we, uh, you know, take our body and our mind and our heart and we make it submissive to the spirit of Christ that's within us. So this earthen vessel, as it was singing in those lyrics, you get the song this week, will be for his glory. And so we talked about that. And this week, we're going to talk about our fourth value, which is phenomenatanga or togetherness, togetherness. And, uh, you know, Katie talked about it a bit earlier, but I love the church. Obviously, you'd hope so. Uh, but I, I love the church, and I will, I will rip people to shreds in love that tear down the church, because I think Jesus would do the same. It's his body. He defends it with pride. He's all about it, and uh, I know over these last two years with our common life as, as a church has been so disrupted, it's only made me love the church more, even though maybe it's given me more reasons to not love the church. But I've only loved it more. I've only missed it more. Absence has made the heart grow fonder. And I believe the church, and I realize I'm talking about a little like hot topic word. We'll get to that. 
But the, I, I believe the church was designed to bless us. I believe this whole thing that God calls church was supposed to be a blessing in our lives and part of how God would meet some of the deepest longings in our soul. But many of us, we just don't know how to be a part of it. We don't know really what it is. And we often miss it just by a few degrees, but that's enough to miss it completely. That's why our fourth value is togetherness, is phenomenatanga, this idea of coming together this it's more than family it's it's hard to express but hopefully we'll get there today because learning to be god's church together is an essential part of discipleship when you read the letters in the new testament you'll realize that about half of the words are instructions on how to do this common life under christ to followers of jesus and i know as i said it's like when i say church some people are like hmm. You know, I'm, ho I'm okay just being here or just watching or just, but there's, that word's loaded, you know. For some people, it's got politics attached to it. For some people, it's got abuse attached to it. For some people, it's got hurt attached to it. It's got all sorts of different things attached to that word. And, you know, we all hate that stuff. We all wish that stuff didn't exist. I even heard a story in our, in our church this week about how some things happened that just has really hurt some, someone in our church. And it's just like, you know, it breaks my heart to know that, you know, our common life sometimes, you know, we miss each other. And it doesn't, we don't get it all right. But just because we don't get it all right doesn't mean it's not worth getting. People have been hurt. People have missed it. But we can't live a full life in Christ, church at arm's length. I need you to hear me on that. We cannot live a full life in Christ with the church at arm's length. We cannot let offense, we cannot let unresolved issues, we cannot let bad theology, and we cannot let a lack of other people, and especially a lack of pastors, a lack of trust of pastors, rob us of what Christ is trying to bless us with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and I've said this many times in our church because I think it's a quote for our time. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. In our longing for ideals, sometimes we miss the people and we end up destroying the people while longing for something that we're not yet. And there's a wrestle, we almost, we can long for something better, but we've got to love the people more than that longing. But before we can get to the scriptures today, before we can dive into this thing, I, I hope I can shape some imagination for us today using the scriptures of what this togetherness is, this common life is. Before we can get to that, we must realize that we don't sit here as empty vessels. We don't approach this topic of togetherness you know, just ready to be filled with whatever God has. We already come full with all of our stuff, with our offenses, our assumptions, but particularly with our culture, our wider culture that we've grown up in, it gives us mindsets. And what I want to show us today is that some of those mindsets, some of those assumptions, some of those value systems are the reason we can't get this thing called church because we can't see it how God sees it because we're too full of our culture. We can see that in our culture, many struggle to even do marriage or family or lifelong friends 
or struggle to navigate workplace tension. So, of course, church would be a bit hit and miss. The statistics of people dropping out of church, of believers not in church, and even how church is interacted with by most people who call at home only goes to show there's a lot more to learn and grow in. I love the church. Christ loves the church. Christ died for us. And I wish more people would get a revelation of it. I wish more people would find healing for their offense. I wish more people would find their perspective of it shaped by the scriptures rather than slogans and cliches because it's Christ's body. It's his temple. The scripture says in Ephesians 3, this is the pillar of truth in the world, and it's through the church that Christ is actually trying to fill the whole world with himself. He's not interested in working around the church. He's only interested in working through her. And so two big cultural stories that we've been told our whole lives that actually make it hard for us to live out this value of togetherness we need to recognize the first is this, the first is individualism. Since the beginning of our lives, we've been being told a story and it's this, that you are of utmost importance. Your cares, your dreams, your heart, your mind, your truth, your freedom, your, 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 me, 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 me. Individualism is about the individual above all else. It's me that matters. Individualism says, I'm my own person. I can make it on my own. I don't need anyone. It's God. The God of the individualist is the self-made man or woman, and we can see that in our culture. The independent, the lone ranger, the self-sufficient, these are our ideals and our aspirations in our culture. The person who owns their own house, has their own business, has their own passive source of income. The person who doesn't need anyone. They value their own freedom above the consequences of the group. It's all about rights and it's little about responsibilities. And I shouldn't need to convince anyone that this is the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's the obvious and the subtle messages that we've received from the time of our birth to the time of now. It's so pervasive that even when we read the scripture, we don't read it as it is, we read it as we are. I'll give you an example. Last year, I was preparing a message for Curate Auckland, actually, and I was thinking about this idea of togetherness. And I was thinking about that verse, and don't put it on the screen yet, I was thinking about that verse in Ephesians 2.10, where it talks about how, like, you're Christ's masterpiece, like, you're amazing, you're his workman and you've been created anew in Christ Jesus for the good works that have been prepared for you since the beginning. It's like an amazing, oh, like, yes, I'm Christ's masterpiece. That's, yes, me and Jesus. It's amazing, and he's, he's creating me anew in Christ. He's got good things for me to do, and I was sitting in my spa just pondering that verse, <laughs> which is an individualist thing in itself, because the kids aren't allowed in there with me because they splash too much, no. They are, but there's rules. Um, <laughs> I was sitting in there and I was thinking, I wonder when it says like you are Christ's masterpiece, I wonder if that you is a plural. Like I wonder if I've been reading it like it's me the whole time, but I wonder if that you is plural. And I just was thinking about this in the spa and I thought, it, it just got in me, I had to get out. And I had to get my Bible and I had to open it up and if you got one with you, you can open it up to Ephesians 2.10 and here's my surprise when I read it. It says, for we are 
his workmanship or his masterpiece. We. I was like, I've been reading this my whole Christian. I'm a pastor. And I missed the we. I assumed it meant you. Such is the power of individualism that we don't even notice the word. We read it as me. I'm his masterpiece. Look at me. He's creating me and you in Christ Jesus for the good things prepared for me, for the good works that I might walk in them. And I was just like, and that may be true. It's just not what it says. It says we. It's, it's not the meanness that is the masterpiece or the workmanship. It's the weeness, which is an unfortunate word. Uh, it's the it's the weeness. I don't know any other way to say it. Um, that's the masterpiece. That's the workmanship. That's the beauty. Is the church is the beauty, and it's the church that's been created in you in Christ Jesus, and it's the church that has good works prepared for it since long ago, and we are all a part of that, but such is the power of individualism, we don't even see it. We don't even read it. Everywhere it says we, we see me. And the next cultural thing I want us to be concerned about, which is sort of like the baby of individualism, it's individualism's natural outworking, and it's this, it's consumerism. Consumerism is all about the acquisitions of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. It emphasizes consumption. It thinks that the free choice and desires of the consumer should shape the products and services the way they are offered. Consumerism is never satisfied. It wants more, more things, more experiences, more of its own way. It wants to be filled, fed, serviced, noticed, listened to, and revolved around. Consumerism, when it plays itself out in education, means the students get to rank their teachers and decide what they get taught. This is, but this is the way things going. When consumerism takes over, and you know, we'll get pointed about how this affects church in just a moment. So if you thought last week was tough, we're getting there. You know what individualism and consumerism have in common? Well, they have self in the center. And that's real tough because when you get to church, God's in the center. And we struggle with that. Individualism in church says follow your dream, follow your heart, they're holding you back. If you can't be yourself there, be, find a new there. It's not working for me. It's not feeding me. It's not serving me. Praise me. Appreciate me. Encourage me. Notice me. Have the right times for me. And consumerism walks out of church and goes, it was okay, but I didn't really like that song. It's too loud, it's too long, it's too short. Nobody ever said it's too short. The free coffee wasn't good enough. The parking is rubbish. That time doesn't work for me. I liked the message today. I didn't like the message today. I hate when you make me talk to the person next to me. God forbid that you make me pray with them. What am I, a Christian? I don't like when they talk about money. These are the things that consumers say about church. And counter to individualism and counter to consumerism is this idea of collectivism or phenomenatanga or togetherness. And it says, what are our goals? Who are we becoming? What's on our heart? How can we stay loyal to each other? How can we get there together? No one left behind. I'll sacrifice if it helps someone else. 
individualism and consumerism shape us to do church on our own terms rather than on God's terms. But it's his church, and it's his grace that's letting you be a part of it and letting me be a part of it. It's his house, and you would think if it was his house, we'd be more mindful of his rules. Because it's interesting, when I go to someone's house, like we let people wear shoes in our house, and I know that's disgusting, but it's also easy. And when you come to my house, it, it doesn't matter, I don't care about that. But when you go to somebody else's house, when I arrive, if it's like all the shoes are all at the door, and I don't know how we all take our shoes off, but there's still lots of shoes at the door. I don't know how that works. Any other families out there? There's baskets of them, you know? It's like, there's only six of us in this house. Why is there so many shoes? Uh, but, the, you know, and if, the, if their rules in their house are that you take your shoes off, you don't be like, well, no, you don't really have to do that. I don't do that in my house. You just respect that it's their house and their rules, right? It's just automatically, like, you don't even really think about it because you know their house, their rules. Well, God's house, his rules. Not, not church for me, church for God. We are the church for him. And individualism and consumerism's influence is so deep that most of the scriptures in the New Testament we miss the heart of. We read things like 1 Corinthians 1.10, which says, I appeal to you, dear brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And we think he must be kidding. All of you agree. All of you be of one mind. Like, we just think that's got to be ridiculous. Or we read, like Jesus, when they say, teach us to pray. And it's the Lord's Prayer. And we all pray, my God. But he never said to pray, my God. He said to pray, our Father in heaven. That even our prayer life should be shaped with an usness. That's better than weeness, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> To see my identity as a part of a larger identity. I would need to learn. I, I hear that, that maybe usness isn't better now. Okay. I would need to learn how to see. I need to learn if I'm going to live this out, to see how to see what God's not just doing in me, but what God's doing in us. I would need to consider how my attitudes and my actions either contribute or detract from what God's doing in us. I love this. It says that God has ordained a special place of transformation into Christ's likeness. There's a place for it. However, in, uh, however, to be the community of the church, this ecclesia, just as the institutional form of the kingdom in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel, so the institutional form of the kingdom between Pentecost and Christ's return, that's now on earth, is the church. It's God's special place for transformation with us with Jesus as the centerpiece and the face of the present form of the kingdom. To have a hope of being a part of God's church in a way he desires, we have to at least become aware of our individualism and of our consumerism. And we need to become aware of it. We need to repent of it. We need to challenge it. We need to crucify it. We need to be willing to be confronted about it when it comes out of us with other people. We need to be open if we're ever going to grab a hold of any togetherness. There's two big metaphors that shape our togetherness, and this is sort of the meat of what we're talking about today. The first is family. When we think church, we shouldn't think a service. We shouldn't think a place. We shouldn't think a time. We should think family. 
Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul uses the term for brothers and sisters 127 times in the New Testament. When Paul thought of church, the Apostle Paul writes half of the New Testament, when he thought of church, he thought siblings. He thought siblings. He didn't think time, place, friends, audiences. He thought siblings. It matters how pastors frame their congregations. Words matter, images shape, and metaphors live. Some preacher types like to think of their churches as audiences. Some counselor types like to think of their congregations as souls. Some teacher types think of them as students. Some sacramental types think of congregations as sinners in need of mediation or as needy people. The Apostle Paul constantly called his church siblings. And the constant thinking of them as siblings and calling them siblings built a culture of siblingship rather than a culture of audience, souls, students, or those in need of mediation. To nurture siblingship in churches then will require that the pastor frames his congregation as siblings. So here's me saying we're siblings. We're siblings. This is, needs to be the first way that we see it. Family starts as friendship, for sure. You can't get to family without starting as friends. Friendship is commitment, it's affection, it's presence, it's advocacy, it's direction. And side note, one of the biggest like, uh, you know, felt needs when people come to church is like they need friends. They need belonging. But here's a little tip. When you aim for friendship, you'll never find it. When your biggest need is for friendship, you'll never find friendship. Instead, if you aim at something else and go do it with some other people, you might make some friends along the way. If you turn up at a small group in desperate need of friends, you'll probably come across so needy that nobody will ever want to be your friend. But if you come to the small group because you want to grow in Christ, help other people grow, learn in the Word and pray together, man, you might make some friends on the way. If you turn up to church because you want to serve other people, you might make some friends on the way. If you get involved, your friendship's not made by trying to make friendship. Friendship gets formed by common interest. That's how friendship gets formed. And there are four main themes if we move from friendship to family. There's four main themes of family. These all exist almost at the same time in our family. Okay? Love, harmony, discord, and hierarchy. These are four characteristics of family. And they can coexist all at the same time. We all know. Anyone has got a family knows all of these things can be happening at the same time. Love, harmony, discord, and the discord's normally about hierarchy. The kids are trying to be the boss. Brothers and sisters, here's some things that family means for our common life. Family means that we have a common identity. We all come from the same place. We've all got the same name. It's Jesus. We've all got the same blood running through our veins, and we all have the same father. That's what family is. It's common identity, and we all have it in Jesus. Family is priority. You know, people say family first, family first, family first. Yeah, yeah, you've got two families. You've got your biological family, and you've got the family of God, and they both come first. So next time somebody says family first, find a way to make both of them a priority in your life, because family is priority. Family is love. Family is all these other annoying things too. Family is compromise. Family is working things out. 
because dinner's coming around real quick. Family is messy. Family is hurt, conflict, mistakes, forgiveness, and imperfection. Nobody can cut like family. Family is bearing with each other, making allowance for each other. It's beyond liking people. It's just realizing people are who they are and being okay with that. You don't have to like everybody to be family. Family is something you can be a help with or a hindrance to, but it's not something you can ever leave. It's only a question of whether or not you're a health contributor or a health detractor. You know, when you go to a restaurant, it's quite different to go into a family meal, eh? When you go to a restaurant, it's like, what time is it happening? The time I booked it in. <laughs> Waiter, I'll have that wine. I'll have, I mean, that water. Uh, I'll, have, I'll have, you know, this thing, that thing. We'll have an entree now, then we'll have that. Yep, take the dishes away, thank you. I don't want anything to do with those. I'm finished eating, may they be removed immediately. This is restaurant, right? And when I leave, I'll pay the bill. Family meal's very different. Family meal's like, when's it ready? You ask that one more time. <laughs> when all extended family, we all get together once a month, our extended family, we all get together, everybody brings something. You don't turn up empty-handed, you bring something. It's ready sort of when it's ready. It's chaos, there's kids running around, there's people bumping you, it's all like, you know, it's a beautiful, chaotic mess. It's loud, everybody is included, not just you and your little table. Not just you and your little chair, everybody's included. In the restaurant, you don't have to talk to anyone else, but in family, you talk to everybody, right? And then at the end, when the dishes need to be done, everyone that didn't contribute some food or cook or whatever, they're doing the dishes. I'm trying to hide. <laughs> There's a few of us in our family, we hide together. Genius. Hindrance. Do we treat church like a restaurant, except we don't pay the bill? <laughs> serve it up at 9am, 10am, whatever the time is, serve it up online, it better be right, and it better be the right time, I better be out if you're on the right time, I better have my favourite seat, it better all go alright, oh that was okay, it's a 6 out of 10 today, uh, and and I'm going to leave straight away out of it, and I'm not going to, I didn't contribute anything, I didn't use my gifts, I didn't look out for anybody. I think we treat it more like a restaurant, by and large. Not a family meal, but it's family. It's family. And the second metaphor is this. It's body. There are other metaphors, but I, these are the two very prominent ones in the Scripture. This is where all the weight falls. Family and body. Body. First Corinthians... I, Here's your reading this week, because I don't have time to read the whole thing, because this guy just came up. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter, that's your prescribed reading for the week, Disciples of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, I don't have the time to read the whole thing, I'm just going to get to one verse, person running the screen is doing a fantastic job, and it's verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of of it. You are the body of Christ. Body is inclusive. When you read the whole chapter, you realize nobody can say they're not a part of it. You're a part of it whether you like it or not. It's just whether or not you're a helpful or a hindrance part of it. 
The body is inclusive. Every person is a part of Christ's body once they've been baptized into Christ's body through repentance and faith. In the body, there's need for each other. We're not all the same. Some people are fingers. Some people are fingernails. You know who they are. Uh, some, people, some people are arms. Some people are eyes. Some people are noses. You know, all these sorts of things. But the body doesn't work. We all need each other. It doesn't matter which part you are. We need each other. That's what the metaphor of the body speaks to us about. The metaphor of the body speaks to us about connectedness. We all affect each other. When your fingers sore, your whole, your whole body knows about it. When you got a, you know, a bad knee, your whole body knows about it. When you got a cut, your whole body knows about it. This is the metaphor. When some parts suffer, all parts suffer with it. When some parts, are, you know, are glad, all parts rejoice with it. We are connected. You know, people use this argument often about the church is supposed to be an organism, not an organization. An organism, not an organization. An organism sounds awesome. It sounds romantic. It's all like, oh yeah, we're just flowing. You can't have a family without organization. You just can't. It needs organization. But I get what we say about organism. We don't want it to feel organization-y. We want it to feel relational. We want it to feel natural. We want it to feel these things. And I love that. If that's what we want, awesome. But you can't want that and keep treating it like an organization. Because if you want that, what you have to realize is when you're present, it makes a difference. And when you're absent, it makes a difference. If it was an organization, it wouldn't matter. But because it's an organism, it makes a difference. When you come ready to worship, it makes a difference because it's an organism. It's a body. It makes a difference. When you come like selfish, it makes a difference. When you come lazy, it makes a difference. When you come full of faith, it makes a difference. This is the nature of organism. It's crazy, you know, when people lose a limb, how they experience phantom pains. Like they experience, like you lose an arm, but you experience the pain as if the arm's still there. Man, I reckon we've got the whole church in phantom pains. It's not there and you'd think that it shouldn't matter, but because there's so many people missing from the life of the body, it's like we're, in, we're hurting. We're incomplete. We've got all these limbs missing everywhere. And the body means that we all work together for the good of the whole. Ephesians 4, verse 11 talking about the church as a body says this and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry not to put on a show for everybody to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up of the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are now to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. When I first uh, became a Christian, I was part of a little conservative church called the Church of Christ. Once a month, we had this thing called Fellowship Lunch. Does anyone remember those? Fellowship Lunch. 
It's like potluck lunch, but it was a way to say, like, we're together, let's express it once a month in a meal. If you've ever been a youth pastor, like when we were a youth pastor, whenever you did a potluck, you knew that youth leaders were useless at potlucks, okay? You knew they were going to bring ice cream, lollies, and bags of chips, and that we would always have to provide the meal, you know, if anybody wanted to actually eat something of substance. And I remember those fellowship lunches. I love the idea of it. It's like everybody brings something, and if everybody brings something, everybody can go home fed. Isn't that amazing? And you're always like, who's the person bringing the bucket of chicken? Who's the person bringing the hot chips? Yeah, we always love that person. Who's the person bringing that amazing curry they always make? And then there's the person that brings that like, oh, I'll avoid that. <laughs> the boiled eggs, yay. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so many people in the body of Christ are starving. And they're starving because we're stingy because we're not bringing anything to the table so that everyone will be fed. If you are starving, it might actually be because you're stingy and there just isn't enough food on the table for us all to grow into maturity in Christ. If you build a house, like you try, if you're trying to build a house at the moment, you realize half the trades don't turn up. Half the materials don't show up. And it doesn't matter how good the builder is. It doesn't matter how good the plumber was. If there's no electrician, there's no roofer, there's no block layer, the house will never be complete. That is the state of the church. I've got gifts, but the reason I've got gifts is to equip every single person who calls this church home to, to serve in the ministry. Serve in the ministry just means service, to bring their service. And if everybody does their service, the promise is that we'll be built up to such a maturity and love that we'll be measuring up to the full standard of Christ. The 80-20 principle, you've heard of that, right? 20% of people do 80% of the work. It's not in the scripture. The scripture's principle is 100-100. Everybody brings something to the table. I'm going to take a couple more minutes because I can. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks, people watching online. We've been so intentional over the years to create a welcoming church where we say you can belong no matter what you believe, come as you are. You know, you've heard us say these things. It's amazing. People feel accepted. People feel comfortable to come journey with us. The downside is, is that we've never been clear about what it actually means to call the church home. So we've been so fuzzy on the outside that it's actually fuzzy all the way in. And so there's not the solid core of what belonging actually means so that we can be accepting on the, on the edges. And my goal, just in closing this today, is to bring some definition to what journeying to call a church home actually means. Because when some people go, oh yeah, I call Curate home, and I'm like, I haven't seen you in six months. Clearly home to you means something very different to me. So let's bring some clarity. Here's some things that we should all be on the journey of. These could be fantastic next steps for you calling the church home and expressing togetherness. The first is that all of us should call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior and have been water baptized. That's what it means to join the church. We treat the Bible as God's authoritative word, not his suggestive word. 
We are committed to be a part of the life of the church, participating regularly in worship, prayer, and communion. Not coming to be entertained, coming to bring something to the gathering of the church. I will be in a small group, gathering regularly with others for the purpose of fellowship and growing together as disciples because the Bible tells us that we have to encourage one another as long as it's called today. And that has to happen in smaller groups. I will be growing spiritually, fostering a life of spiritual practices. I will be prayerful, holding my brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. I will be generous, giving of my tithes and offerings to support the work and the mission of the church. I will serve. God has given me gifts for the use of the building up of the body and the redeeming of the world. I'll discover what they are and I will use them. I will protect the unity of God's church, speaking well of others and working to resolve issues in a godly manner and always honoring others. And I'll live a life that brings honor to God and to his church. Some people get all of this stuff. Few people get all of it. Some people get some of it. But what would be possible if all of us stepped into all of it? Imagine the spiritual fire with me if everyone had given their lives fully to Jesus, repentant and in faith. Imagine the transformation and clarity we would have living our lives if we all treated this Bible as the authoritative word in our lives. Imagine the presence in our church and in our lives if we were all equally committed to worship, as equally committed as the worship leaders to worshiping the Lord to prayer, to communion. Imagine the miracles, imagine the presence, imagine the breakthrough, imagine the encouragement, imagine the joy, imagine the strength. Imagine the richness of community if everyone was doing life together in groups, actually caring and discipling and working through each other, things with each other and supporting one another. Imagine if we were all alive in spiritual practice as how much each person's life would add to our life and the vibrancy of the whole. Imagine the breakthrough, the renewal, the strength that would be happening if we were all praying for each other. Imagine the resource that would be in the church if a third of the people didn't just give, but 100% of the people gave. Imagine how much there would be for mission and for serving the poor and for doing good works in our community. Imagine the gifts that would be on display, blessing people if everybody discovered what they were and used them. Imagine the impact in the community if everybody was living on purpose out there. Imagine how unified we would be if we watched how we spoke and we protected unity above all else, resolving conflict, conflict biblically. And imagine the blessing that God would bestow on that group of people. Imagine if we all honored each other as much as we would like to be honored. And imagine the reputation we would have in the community if we were this type of church and imagine the glory we would bring to God. It is a dream worth living into. Hence why our value is togetherness. The last six months have seen the most divisive, Um, environment in church that I've ever seen. Yes, the government rules were sucky. Yes, as a church, it's hard to have to make a call to follow the law. But I can't be a biblical 
integrity teacher by encouraging anybody else otherwise. And yes, I'm excited about the rules disappearing. But the church has to take responsibility for the fact that the government hasn't divided us. We've divided ourselves. In our attitudes, in our language, in the way. We're coming into a time where we're going to see everybody reconciled. Where we're going to see wounds healed. Where we're going to see things talked about and forgiveness given and repentance given and all of those sorts of things. Let's do it under the banner of togetherness. And let's embrace whatever God has in the future as we welcome people back and we figure out how to heal those wounds and walk together once more.